We learn in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Lord Jesus Christ has graciously given His church gifted individuals to equip us for ministry. And I'm delighted that this weekend we've been benefiting from one of those gifts. We've been benefiting from a gifted man of God who's been teaching us the Word of God about the greatness of God. We've had Bruce Ware with us this past weekend. We had a conference yesterday and just had a delightful time. I'm so glad that Bruce Ware is here with us. Um, This is the first time we've met, but uh, I've benefited from his books greatly. And in case you don't know a little bit about uh, theological controversy and important theological controversies, um, there is, in a sense, the greatest theological controversy, and that has to do with whether or not God is really God and God is really sovereign. And uh, sadly enough, that even gets questioned at times. And a number of years ago, um, not very many years ago, it was really questioned. And God used in a great way uh, Bruce Ware to address that on a a good and clear biblical level. And he wrote some very important books, uh, starting with God's Lesser Glory. Perhaps you've heard of that. And uh, I'm so thankful that God raises up the right person at the right time to open the Word of God and to help the people of God to see clearly uh, who He is so that we might not think wrongly about Him. And uh, just a blessing that God has, has given us. And, and I'm thankful that this weekend we haven't had to stand here reading Bruce Ware's books. Um, as, my, as nice as that might be, he's actually been with us. And we've got to know him a little bit and, and to see him as uh, someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and loves his people and uh, has just been a delight to be with. And so I'm glad that today Bruce is with us and he's going to remind us once again, uh, not in the context of controversy, uh, but in the context of brothers and sisters in Christ, he's going to remind us once again about the greatness of God. And so let's welcome Bruce as he comes. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you, Pat, very much. And uh, Mike was here. Mike, he, he did so much work getting things ready and contacting me and, and many others involved in the conference this past weekend. It has been a delight to be here with you. I'm sorry about my voice this morning. I'm just glad I can still speak some, but uh, something happened at the end of the conference yesterday, and I woke up this morning wondering if I could preach. But by God's grace, there's still enough left that I I think you can hear me, uh, and um, I'm grateful for amplification. That will help a lot. But uh, And it's a delight to be here to unpack this morning uh, from primarily from Isaiah, but we'll look at another passage as well, some, something of the greatness of God that is not often talked about in our churches. It, we're going to focus on an attribute of God that really is, in my judgment, at the very foundation of a correct understanding both of who God is and who we are before Him. I mean, we've got to get this right. It really matters. And if we do get it right, everything changes. I mean, it's, it's one of these fundamental understandings that really does affect the whole of how you understand God and your life and and really ministry and every aspect of of how we live our lives before Him. You know, we live in a culture that is saturated with self-esteem. We are told to to raise our children 
and to think much of themselves. You know, you never want to say anything, you know, Johnny, you did the wrong thing here. Oh, no, don't do that because you might hurt Johnny's self-esteem. But I challenge you with this question. Is self-esteem encouraged in the Bible? Are we ever told that we should, we, we should engender and seek to develop self-esteem? And I think the answer is no. We are to have a correct self-understanding. That's true enough. But if there's anyone we are to esteem in the Bible, it is God. From page 1 to the end of the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that book emphasizes God-esteem. And the beautiful irony is when we understand he is the great one, not me, and I am in dependence upon him, drawing from him all that he has that I lack, that's when I enter into fullness of life, fullness of joy, fullness of satisfaction, because it's found in him, not in anything that we have in ourselves, as if we have anything in ourselves that is ours, right? Remember, Paul asks this, this question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you've not received? What's the answer to that rhetorical question? Nothing, nothing. What do you have that you've not received? Then he goes on and asks, so if you've received it, why do you boast as if you've not received it? Well, my friends, we have got to come to terms with our littleness and God's bigness, our, our, our lack and his sufficiency, if we are going to understand him right and who we are before him. So we're going to focus this morning on one attribute, the self-sufficiency of God. And what I'll do is begin with a definition to help us understand what this doctrine is. We'll think about that a little bit together. Then we'll look at some passages that unpack for us the self-sufficiency of God in the Bible. Then we'll take a look at a couple objections that are raised to this doc doctrine within the, uh, the broad Christian church. And then following that, we'll look at some application points. Now, by the way, there is a longer handout, longer than the outline that's in your, in, in your worship folder, that is available if you want to contact the church office. I wrote out two full pages, single-spaced, of application that I'm just going to be able to touch on. So call the church office, get a, get a copy of that to, of the, of the longer handout if you want to read through and think through the very important implications of this doctrine. We'll do a little bit of it, but there's more there. Okay, so this morning we'll take a look at self-sufficiency, beginning with the definition, then look at passages, objections, and application. All right, what does it mean to say that God is self-sufficient? Well, it means this. It is to say that God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. Now, by quality, I mean this. Everything that is qualitatively good. Well, what the Puritans used to refer to as the perfections of God, what we often refer to as the attributes of God, these qualities are God's qualities, things like holiness, justice, righteousness, love, mercy, grace, wisdom, knowledge, power. These are qualities that are God's qualities. No one else possesses them, but God does within himself, and he possesses all of these qualities within himself intrinsically. 
Now, you might wonder, do you have to say that? I mean, once you've said they're within him, do you have to say they're intrinsic to him? And the answer is, yes, you do have to specify this. And here's why. Because you can possess qualities that are within yourself that are not intrinsic to you. The easiest example I can give is if what I indicate, we'd all take a deep breath. All right, ready? Breathe in. Ah, feels good, doesn't it? Well, that breath that is within you is not intrinsic to you. It is extrinsic. It is out there, and you have to live in an environment where you take something into yourself that is not your own, that you need from outside in order to sustain your life. Now, the point with God then is this, that with God, every one of the qualities that God possesses, and he possesses every quality that there is, he possesses them within himself intrinsically. They are his by nature. They are his by virtue of his being God. No one gives him any of these qualities. He is not dependent upon anything outside of himself to give him something that he lacks. He does not need the world that he has made. He does not need anything outside of himself in order for God fully to be God. A.W. Tozer, in his marvelous little book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, need is a creature word not worthy of the creator. Isn't that a good statement? Yes, God has no needs that he does not provide within himself. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. Okay, so God possesses these qualities within himself intrinsically and eternally. There never was a time in eternity past. There never will be a time in eternity future. Nor is it true now that God lacks any of these qualities. They are always all his. And finally, the definition says that he possesses these qualities intrinsically and eternally and in infinite measure. Now, the word infinite is a negative term. It simply means not finite. So what, is it, what, what does finite mean? Well, to be finite is to be bounded, restricted, limited. So God possesses every quality that there is within himself intrinsically, eternally, and without boundary, without restriction, without limitation. My, what an amazing God God is. Now, is this taught in the Bible? Well, it is. Take a look with me at Isaiah 40, if you would, please. Isaiah 40. And we'll look at verses 12 to 17. Beginning at verse 12, God, through the prophet Isaiah, begins asking some rhetorical questions. Now, rhetorical questions are questions whose answers are so obvious, you don't have to give the answer. Is the Pope Catholic? I think we know the answer to that question. Well, here are some rhetorical questions. Look with me at verse 12 of Isaiah 40. Who do you know, asked the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, who do you know who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Now look at that first image at the beginning of verse 12. Who do you know who has measured the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Think of it. 
cupping in your hand the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea that would have been familiar to Isaiah in his day. Who do you know who can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? What an amazing picture of how big God is. I have a very precious memory of a time with my own two girls. They're now grown, but when uh, they were about seven and four years old, we were on vacation at uh, the Oregon coast, and we had a little beach cabin for a couple days. It's really a wonderful uh, time there. We enjoyed it so much. And the first morning that we were there, I read Isaiah 40 at our breakfast table for our family devotions with this idea in mind. So after, after breakfast, I said to my girls, hey, girls, do you want to do an experiment with daddy down at the beach? And they said, oh, yeah, they're, they're excited. So they grabbed their towel and we head on down. And when we got there to the beach, I said, now, do you remember that, that statement in Isaiah 40 that God can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Yeah, we remember that. Okay, here, here's the experiment. Now, I want you to stay right along the shoreline here, and I'm going to go and wade out into the Pacific Ocean, and I'm going to lean down and scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands, and I want you to watch really carefully and see how far the level of that ocean dips when I do that. Okay, Daddy, they're excited. So I go out there. I say, now, girls, are you watching? Oh, yeah, we're watching. So I lean out and scoop up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. I said, now, look again. Let's try this again. So I leaned down and scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came back, got down on my knees with my girls, eye level with them, and I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really important about the difference between how big we are and how big God is. See, I'm your dad, and I go out there into that Pacific Ocean, scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands, and you cannot tell anything has changed. But imagine a hand so big. Look at that ocean. That if this hand came down and scooped up that water, the ocean bed would be dry. That's how big God is. Wow, what an image of the greatness and, and the immensity of God. Well, he continues in verse 12. Who do you know who is marked off the heavens by the span? The heavens by the span. The span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and little finger. And, uh, it, and it would have been a, a meaningful image in Isaiah's day. I mean, anyone just looking at the heavens at, the, at night as, as they would have had a regular experience without any city lights would, would have understood how great and glorious they are. We understand the expanse of the heavens, though, in a, in a way that Isaiah could not have in his day. I mean, think with me for a moment about the size of the universe through, through some of the things we know. Light travels at what speed? You remember this, don't you? 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. Amazing. At that speed, light leaving the sun to get to the planet Earth takes about seven and a half minutes. Now, the next closest star to us, our next door neighbor, it takes, from, from the time light leaves that star to arrive at planet Earth, it takes four and a half years to get here. Can you believe it? And that is the, that's our next door neighbor in the, in the cul-de-sac we live in called the Milky Way Galaxy. And that Milky Way Galaxy has within it 10 billion stars. 
Can, can, can you fathom this? Separated by an average distance of 10 light years from each other. Now, that's just the Milky Way galaxy, one galaxy of hundreds of millions of comparably sized galaxies in this universe spread out with distances of millions of light years from each other. I mean, it's just unfathomable to imagine. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? Wow, the bigness of God, his immensity, his power is amazing. Now he continues in verse 12. Who do you know who has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? I love that last image. Who do you know who can hold the scales upon which you weigh the mountains? Put the Himalayas over here. Put the Rockies over here. Hold the scales that weigh the mountains. My, God is powerful and immense. He is so big and expansive. Now, verses 13 and 14 continue the rhetorical questions, but the subject shifts from the power of God and the immensity of God now to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. Who do you know who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor who has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? So what's the answer to those questions? Who has ever been God's advisor? No one. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. Now get this one. God wants no advisors. Why? Because he knows everything perfectly. Honestly, I've often thought, God would do all of us a big favor if he would just reveal to us for one moment the amount of knowledge we actually know, not misperceptions, not, 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 not false information, but we actually know in comparison to what he knows. I mean, I think it would be a grain of sand on the, on the Florida beaches. I think that's a, probably a pretty apt comparison. My friends, God knows everything perfectly and his wisdom designs the very best means for accomplishing the best ends possible. We cannot instruct God. He knows everything and his wisdom is impeccable. Now, when you look at verses 12 to 14, you realize then how great is God's knowledge and wisdom, his power and his immensity. And the question now becomes, what does that mean for us? Where does that put us before God? Well, let's move on. Verse 15 begins to unpack the implications for who we are before him. Verse 15, behold, the nations. Now stop right there. <clears throat> I want you to get this point. When he says the nations, he means the collective totality of humanity considered together. All of our knowledge and wisdom, our power, our prowess, all of who we are considered together are like what before God? The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Now, what do those two images have in common? A drop and a speck are things that are what? Tiny, small, insignificant, inconsequential. 
You know, imagine standing at the deli counter, someone's in front of you and they've just asked for a pound of sliced turkey. The fellow has sliced it off and he's put it up there in the scale. He's about to press the button for the price sticker to come out. And, and the, the person in front of you says, wait a minute. And you wonder what the problem is. And so, so does the clerk. And, and uh, he says, what's the problem? And, and, and the fellow says, I don't want to be overcharged. Oh, how would that be? There's a speck of dust on the scale. I mean, you would laugh at that, wouldn't you? Why? Because a speck of dust doesn't weigh in. Isn't that the point? Yeah. So who are we before God? A drop from a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, at least we're a drop. At least we're a speck. Well, my friends, keep reading. It gets worse, not better. Keep reading with me. Verse 15. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up islands like fine dust. The, the idea there is that he, he uh, plays with the islands in a manner that a little kid plays with the sand at the beach, running it through his fingers. Verse 16, even Lebanon, that forested area to the north of Israel, is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all the nations, now here we are back again, the collective totality of humanity considered together. What are we before God? All the nations are as nothing before him. Well, my friends, we've been demoted, haven't we? We've gone from speck and drop to nothing. You can't get worse than that, can you? It's worse. Keep reading. Keep reading. Verse 17. The nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. We've hit rock bottom. That's about as low as you can get. Well, my friends, now we, we've got to think really carefully here about what this means when God says the nations are less than nothing and meaningless what this means and what it does not mean. Let's start with what it does not mean. It does not mean God doesn't care about the nations. They mean nothing to him. How do we know that? That that cannot be what God says here. Well, how about John 3.16 to start with? God so loved what? The nations, the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Well, this is not then a God who doesn't care about the nations. Obviously, he does deeply to send his son to be the one who will die for them. Even in Isaiah 40, though, you don't have to go to John 3.16. In Isaiah 40, the whole point that God is making, why he wants his people to get it, to understand how great he is, how wise he is, how mighty he is, is for what purpose? Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 28 and following. Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. What's the point? 
Why does God want his people to get it, to understand how great he is? Answer, so that in their weakness, they will go to the one who is infinitely strong. In their foolishness, they will go to the one who is infinitely wise. Well, if this is the case, then I submit to you, this is not a God who doesn't care about his people, right? He wants them to thrive. He wants them to prosper as they wait on him and look to him what they, for, for what they lack, but he has in fullness. Okay, well, if it's not then, if got back to verse 17, if the point is not that God doesn't care about the nations, what does he mean when he says, the nations are before me as less than nothing and meaningless? Well, here it is, my friends. Now, listen carefully. If you ask the question, what can the nations of the world, the collective totality of humanity, all of our knowledge and wisdom and power and prowess, what can we add to the infinite fullness that is God's? What's the answer? Nothing, absolutely nothing, because God has everything within himself, intrinsically and eternally and in infinite measure. He is self-sufficient. Now, look with me at one other passage besides Isaiah 40. Turn, turn, if you would, to Acts 17 in the New Testament. Acts 17. In this chapter, Paul is in Athens... And he's waiting for people to join him. While he's waiting, he went and looked around the city of Athens and observed how religious they were. The irony of, was this, though, that though they worshipped every god imaginable, the one god they didn't know about happened to be the one true and living god. So Paul was asked to tell them who this god is. So he goes to the Areopagus, and we pick up at verse 24, where he begins to unpack who the true god is. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Do you see self-sufficiency there? Yeah, God doesn't live in temples made with hands. He isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. Okay, he's self-sufficient. Now, Paul grounds that truth about God, that he is self-sufficient, with three arguments that buttress it. The first one comes at the beginning of verse 24. God is creator. God is creator. The God who made the world and all things in it. Okay, now think hard with me. This is worth working on. What is the logical connection between God as creator and God as self-sufficient? The God who made the world and all things in it, he isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. So what's the connection between these two? Do you see it? Well, now think. How does God create according to the Bible? He speaks and brings into existence a universe that did not exist before, right? The way theologians say it, is uh, he created ex nihilo, out of nothing, and brought into existence this universe. 
Well, doesn't it stand to reason then that if God existed as God before he created the universe, then he doesn't need the universe that he made. In fact, the universe and everything that it is displays attributes, characteristics that come out of God, but nothing in that universe has ever contributed anything to God because he has existed eternally as God apart from the universe. The universe itself is dependent upon him. So when you think of it, the dependency relationship between God and the world runs one way. God depends upon the world for how much? Nothing at all. He is the eternal God with the world or without a world. How much does the world depend upon God? For everything. It's very existence. Every quality that it possesses. All of it displays the glory of God. As Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory, not of the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. It is His power, His wisdom, His beauty that is manifest in the created order. Second argument, not only is God creator, but secondly, he is ruler or Lord. Again, verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. So this is good biblical theology. To create is to own, and to own is to have rights of rulership over, right? So how much did God create? Everything. How much does he own? Everything. How much does he have rights of rulership over? Everything. My friends, we have got to settle this in our own minds that we do not have absolute rights on anything. We don't have a right to live this moment. God could take our lives and he would be just and right to do so. He, he, we don't own our kids, our families. We don't own our homes, our, any, anything in our bank accounts. It's all God's. What is the biblical term for the fact that we have things that are ours? We are stewards. Stewards. God is the owner of everything that is. Well, because God is the owner of everything, and that, that, in, that includes, by the way, just what, one sample example of that. It includes our kids you know, my, my two girls now are grown, and before each of them left home, I, I had a little conversation with them, and I said, you know, I just, I want formally to, to, to let you know that you are released to do whatever God has for you to do. I never want you to feel obligated to live anywhere or do anything that I, your, I, your dad, or your mom would prefer. Because you have to go where God wants you to go. And the reason I thought about doing this is because of my years teaching at Southern Seminary. There's, there is more of an attitude in the South than there was in the North that we want our kids to live right by us. We want those grandbabies to be right here. And honestly, my friends, it is wrong for parents to put that pressure upon their children because they are not yours. They are God's. You have been given the privilege to steward them but they are his and he has the rights to send them wherever he wants them to go. And that may include the other side of the world in missions. And you bow your head and you say, thank you, God, for the privilege we have had of having these kids and use them for your glory wherever you take them. So now what, what is the connection here between God is self-sufficient 
and God as Lord or ruler? Well, it's simply this. Since everything is his, he doesn't need to ask for a cup of sugar from the neighbor, you know? He, he doesn't have to borrow something he doesn't have. In Psalm 50, we read these words. God tells his people, if I were hungry, don't miss the if in that statement. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. So God possesses everything and can use it as he wishes. He doesn't need help from anyone else. Okay, third, he's not only creator and Lord or ruler, but he is the giver of every good gift. Look with me at the end of verse 25. He isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Notice the two uses of the word all there. He gives to all people all things. Well, if God gives to all people all things, what must he antecedently possess? All things. It's got to be his to give it. So he possesses everything within himself. We depend upon him for absolutely everything. How many breaths have we taken this morning since the, the service began? Every one a gift from God. My, what an amazing God he is. He possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. Now, let's think for, for just a few moments about a couple of objections that have been raised to this doctrine of self-sufficiency. The first one comes from the major liberal form of theology that dominated in North America and in the, the United Kingdom uh, for, for the 20th century. It was the, it was the major movement of liberal theology. It's called process theology, process theology. And you can tell by the name, what it holds is that everything is in process. There's nothing that is static being. Everything is becoming. Everything is becoming, including God. God is constantly getting better moment by moment. And here's the interesting thing. If you ask them the question, how is God getting better? Here's the answer. God gets better moment by moment as we give to him what he didn't have before that improves him, that makes him better. This is uh, Charles Hartshorn, who was the leading theologian of process theology, taught at the University of Chicago Divinity School for 25 years. Here's a quote from him. He said, I take true religion to mean this essentially, contributing value to God that he would otherwise lack. Can you believe it? Contributing value to God that he would otherwise lack. So, you know, you wake up in the morning, says Hartshorn, and, and your religious impulse is to help God become better today by the things you do and the thoughts that you have. This is my goal in life is to, is, is to help out God, make God better by the way I live. Now, the second example of self-sufficiency uh, or the rejection of self-sufficiency comes a lot closer to home. I call it popular evangelical theology. Popular evangelical theology. It is a teaching that is pervasive in most of our evangelical churches in North America. And it is this. You, you, you can detect it when, when you ask the question, why did God create the world? 
Why are we here? And here's the answer that is typically given. Well, before God created the world, before we were here, he was all by himself. He was lonely. He had no one to talk to, no one to have fellowship with. And so he created us in order to fill this void in his life. And I remember I was taught this as a boy growing up in my Baptist church in Spokane, Washington. I, I can remember hearing this for the first time when I was, I think, in a fifth grade Sunday school class. And I remember thinking, boy, this is really wonderful. This is a great reason for living, to help out poor God. Poor God, you know, isn't it a good thing I'm here so he won't be lonely? And many things that took place in the church fit beautifully this template of poor God. Missionary calls, think of it. You know, you could almost see in the background God wringing his hands as the missionary call went out. You know, God wants to save these people. He really loves them and he wants to get to them. But unless you go, sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, so the implication is, boy, I'm really important. You know, if I don't do this, God won't be able to complete the work he wants to do. So I, I need to help him out. <clears throat> you know, I, what, I, what I have seen is that so much Christian service can actually be motivated from idolatrous concepts. How great we are, how little God is, and how lucky he is that I'm on his team. Isn't that something? Now, my friends, this concept that, uh, that God created the world because he was lonely is absolutely false. So let, let's move on now to application and think, what, what, what does this doctrine of self-sufficiency teach us that we need to take away? What do we learn about God and about ourselves through this doctrine that is of utmost importance? Let me begin with what is true of God. I'll just tick off a few things, things that are just essential for us to see. At, at, the, at the very baseline, it is this. Because God is self-sufficient, he does not need the glorious creation that he has made, either in whole or any part, including... Boy, this is just shocking to, to many of us. I know because it was to me. Including his creation of us human beings. He does not need us in order for God to be happy, to be fulfilled, to, 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 to be the glorious God that he is. By the way, what is the answer to the notion that before God created us, he was all by himself and lonely? What's the answer to it? The doctrine of the Trinity, that God is a social unity. He is one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have an eternal relationship within the Trinity of joy and fellowship and, and interaction that, is, that far surpasses anything we could fathom as mere creatures. God is eternally satisfied as God. So no, he doesn't need the world. He didn't create because he was lonely. He is fully satisfied, fully fulfilled, as it were, being the God that he is. Just tied right to that is the implication that God not only doesn't need us, he doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need us, he doesn't need us to do these things that he calls us to do. More on that in a moment. Because if it weren't for us helping him out, he wouldn't be able to pull it off. 
God doesn't need missionaries. Let me just think with you uh, on that for a moment. Right? Think, Think of it. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere in the world right now. He doesn't have to travel to get to India. He's there. He's everywhere in the world right now, and he is omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do. So could he not, if he wanted, right now, speak the gospel in perfect dialect to every single person on the planet, if he so chose? Yes, he could. So my friends, he doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our gifts. We we, we do not give to him because, boy, if we don't give it, poor God's not going to be able to pull it off. No. Furthermore, he cannot receive anything from us that he has not first given to us, right? So what what do we have to give him that he hasn't first given us? Absolutely. Okay, well, what are the implications then to us? Well, let me me just deal with two here. And again, there's more if you want it on on the longer outline. You can pick up if you wish. First one is this, is, is, is what, what then is our purpose? Why are we here? <clears throat> if the answer to the question is not, God created us because he was lonely, what is the right answer? My friends, this is glorious. Are you ready to worship? Here it is. Though God doesn't need us, he loves us and he longs for us to be fulfilled as he fills us up with himself. So he didn't create us so we can fill up him. He doesn't need to be filled. He's got it all. He created us so that we, the empty ones, might be filled with his fullness. His character reproduced in us. His wisdom replacing my foolishness. His power to come and strengthen me in my weakness. His holiness remaking my character so that I am like him, holy. God loves us so much. He created us and redeemed us for the purpose of giving to us all that we lack. That he has in infinite abundance. Isn't it amazing? I mean, a simple way to put this is we are here fundamentally to be loved by God. Wow. Now, some of you think, well, wait a minute. The great commandment, that looks like what we're here fundamentally to do is to love the Lord our God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Question, where do you get that love from? We love him because he first loves us. So my friends, yes, we are to love him, but everything we have, every, every gift we have, every ability, everything we have is from him. And he calls us to be a people seeking after the, the qualities that are his that he wants to pour into our lives. We are such fools when we fill ourselves with other stuff. And we don't go to him, the fountain of living water, the bread of life. And feast upon who he is to fill us up with what truly satisfies. Last point. What about service? Why does God enlist our service? You know, you've got, you, let me just put before you two passages. Acts 17.25, we already saw this. 
God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Well, which one is it? Serve the Lord or he cannot be served. It's both, depending on what you mean. He is not served, if you mean by that, we cannot give him something that he lacks. We, we cannot contribute something that he didn't have before. He doesn't need our service or anything that we give him. Serve the Lord with gladness. What does that mean? Well, here's what Christian service is, my friends. Because God loves us, he not only wants us to be filled with himself, filled with the qualities that are his, filling our lives, he then grants us the privilege of participating in the process of sharing that bounty with others. What first flowed into our lives, we then share with others. And guess what that's called? Ministry, service to the Lord. And when you and I both get this, that everything any one of us has to give to the other comes from him ultimately, who gets the glory? God does. We don't stand around with our thumbs in our lapels going, boy, aren't, aren't, I, aren't I talented? Aren't I gifted? You know, isn't it a good thing I'm here? Where do you have it from? And why does he give it to you? Yes, to fill you up indeed, but also to overflow in service to others. So my friends, this is how much he loves us, not only to give to us, but then to give us the privilege of participating in the greatest work there is to do, which is Christian ministry, which is proclaiming the gospel. So yes, God doesn't need missionaries, but guess what? He devised missions as his means of getting the word out because he gave to us the privilege of participating in the proclamation of the greatest message there is. It is out of his love that he calls us, demands us to serve him. My, what an amazing God God is. Now, one more comment and then we'll, we'll close. I'm assuming most of you here this morning, perhaps all of you, but most of you surely, have come to know God through faith in Christ. If you have not, you need to know this, that all that we're talking about here today, every, everything that we have said that has to do with why we are here and, and that we, we, are, we are made to, to be filled with God and, and to receive from Him the bounty of what He has and, and to find our true fulfillment in that way, that that is only possible for those who are reconciled to him through faith in Christ. Because we in, our, we in ourselves on our own are sinners and are rebellious against him and we can have nothing to do with him. The only way we can be related to him is if, is if we accept the gift he has given of his son to pay the penalty for our sin so that as we trust Christ, our sins are forgiven and, and we are justified, declared righteous, and then we can once again be connected to, related to this God who has all this to give. So, have you trusted in Christ? Have you looked to him alone for the forgiveness of your sin and the hope of eternal life? If you haven't, do so today. If you have, look at why he saved you. To know him, so seek him with all your heart. 
Go after him. Find in him what your soul longs for. Find your true satisfaction in him. And when that happens, he will be glorified in his people. Let's pray this. Pray together as we close. Father, we thank you for the privilege this morning of being able to think through these glorious attributes that you have given to us in your word, particularly your attribute of self-sufficiency. We pray, Father, that you would put upon our hearts a longing to, to know you, to seek you, and to receive from you all that you have to give us. And then, Lord God, in thanksgiving, to pass that on to others. So, God, do this work in us, we pray, for the, uh, the, the well-being of your people and for the glory of your name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.